SAFM, leading the conversation. Last week, a group of international academics and lobbyists got together to discuss the impact of the latest policies for drug control have had on the attainment on the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. This session addresses the impacts of the war on drugs on vulnerable populations, the consequences of the new movement towards legalization of recreational drugs, linkages of health treatment alternatives, and the stakeholders affected by drug policy. These discussions formed part of the 12th volume of a journal called International Development Policy. It also delves into specific policies and localized consequences. This includes topics looking at how drug trafficking in conflict zone inhibits peace processes, analyzes practices adopted by governments and development practitioners to help small farmers and villagers escape reliance on illicit cultivation for their livelihoods. To tell us all about this and some. We are joined on the line by Dr. Andrew. Please forgive me, Doctor, but I'm going to attempt nonetheless. Is it Skyber? Very close. Shiber. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Scheiber, medical doctor and policy expert at the Institute of Infectious Diseases and Molecular Medicine at UCT University of Cape Town. Tell us about this volume, please, and give us a synopsis that I might not have captured in my brief introduction. So I think you did a very good job, uh, Sangezo, in in summarizing what the special issue is is meant to highlight. And really it brought together a group of people working in different fields of work, including myself from the health perspective working in South Africa and the health consequences of our current uh, drug policies to people who work with civil society organizations around drug policy globally, to people who are supporting cannabis farmers engaging in fair trade, and also people who work and support people who are affected by the war on drugs uh, and are involved in cocoa development. So the special edition draws attention to how the various elements of development are negatively affected by our current drug policies, and particularly how if we don't address the policies as they stand, we won't reach the sustainable development goals. And the chapter that myself and colleagues focused on was just highlighting some of the examples of how drug policies affected the health of people in South Africa, and particularly people who are poor and vulnerable and marginalized. I, I want us to establish quickly the nexus, if you will, between the sustainable development goals drug policies and development. I mean, what are we looking at here? What are we looking at as indicators that may be affected if the drug-related policies and developmental initiatives do or do not do towards the SDGs? Just please establish that nexus. So if people aren't familiar with the Sustainable Development Goals, are the 17 goals that the United Nations uh, member states committed to focus their efforts on and they, they range from the mo- goal number one is around the elimination of poverty. 
and then there are ones around hunger, good health, quality education, and a range of others. And the ones that are particularly affected by how drug policy impacts um, is particularly on poverty, mm. as well as good health, gender, uh, work, and also economic development. So if we focus on, I think, the most relevant one at the moment is around poverty, and it's often people who are most poor and marginalized that are vulnerable to the way often the drug laws are enforced. So, for example, people who are poor and maybe have been excluded from efforts to raise their awareness about their rights or they have limited access to legal representation, they might be excluded and live on the streets and are more engage with law enforcement and the enforcement of, of drug laws and are more likely then to end up in prison awaiting trial if they don't have access to a, a lawyer. And as soon as you enter that, that pathway into entering the criminal justice system, it really secures you in the cycle of poverty. Uh, the criminal record prevents you from entering a lot of um, future employment opportunities if people are breadwinners and they are then removed from the family situation providing kind of economic support, that pushes households further into poverty. And also it's the communities that live in, in rural areas are often engaged in the cultivation of many crops as cash crops, for example, cannabis in South Africa, cocoa and opium in other places. And the drug war really eradicates the cash crop it causes a lot of environmental damage, and all of those approach, approaches really affect people who are really are very vulnerable and poor. In terms of health and well-being, which is a third development goal, we know that the law on the the most kind of evident example of the war on drugs is the execution of people, and that the execution of people who either use drugs or might be involved in the drug trade. Um, less extreme are. For example, in South Africa, where there isn't wide access to sterile injecting equipment if you inject drugs. So if you don't have access to that equipment and you need to reuse and you are exposed to contaminated injecting equipment, you are at high risk of contracting HIV or viral hepatitis C. Also, for example, in the United States, their approach has really resulted in an epidemic of overdoses related to, to opioids as well as the process of people using more synthetic um, things like fentanyl and people inadvertently overdose. And in terms of gender, it's often women who use drugs are particularly stigmatized, excluded, don't have access to services, and really uh, bear the brunt of many of the, the enforcements. And in terms of economic development, it's often the resources are invested in, in implementing the policies which are actually ineffective. There's no doubt that the war on drugs has failed despite huge investments. And those um, kind of, that investment of money could, could be placed in, in better areas. So those are some of the main things. It's around poverty, health, gender, uh, employment and work. I mentioned if you enter into the criminal justice system, mm. it really mm. reduces your chances of, of meaningful employment. And just so that we can understand our situation a little bit better as we go into it, you said the investments, so to speak, in the fight against drug have largely failed. How does South Africa compare to the world in relation to that remark? So I think what's happened generally is South Africa's 
And most of Africa's drug policy is really based on colonial approaches and not much has changed. So there's still a very large emphasis on what they call supply reduction and demand reduction. And so there's a great emphasis in trying to control borders and control people's use of drugs with you know, huge amounts of money spent on either controlling importation or among people who use drugs by spending huge amounts on law enforcement, arresting people, prosecuting people for very low-level offences. As a result, huge amounts of overcrowding in our prisons, huge amounts of people who are waiting trial, and most of them, when they get to court, their cases aren't um, heard fully because there's such a backlog of laboratory assessments of the drugs that are required if someone is charged to be able to make a sentence. So a huge amount of, of resources are spent in our country to try and enforce these laws. And also they're based on modern science and how the categorization is relevant to various drugs and their potential harm. So, for example, cannabis um, as a, a potential harm to the individual and society is much lower than, can, than alcohol and it's much lower than tobacco. But yet, there are many, many people who are in prison um, who have lots of things that have negatively mm. affected them as a result of our approach on criminalizing cannabis. But similarly, uh, things like magic mushrooms, um, a lot of things actually don't have a lot of harm. We're going to talk about some of these drugs in specific terms, but you mentioned a word which I know is probably going to be the reason why the calls are going to come through in mass. 2042, Johannesburg, 714-2006, alcohol. The previous Minister of Health was at pains to try and just reboot South Africa's engagement with alcohol long before we knew there would ever be a COVID. And we'll talk in a minute in terms of what alcohol has done in COVID times in creating other social problems. But Aaron Otoledi had always said that alcohol in South Africa was a disinvestment. Sure, we get money out of it, but the amount of money we spend in attending to problems associated with liquor, be it road fertilities or the social challenges at social development, alcohol, fetal syndrome, children born with all of these deformations of alcohol because of alcohol. He was really trying to at least ban the sale of alcohol because he felt that alcohol was a serious drug that was not getting the kind of attention that it was. You're remarking of alcohol as a drug now in this conversation. What might you say in the context of all of what I've just said as also referencing the findings of your works? So alcohol. I think abstinence, abstinence doesn't work. So I, I would never promote banning of, abs- of alcohol. So the, the whole approach is that we should be taking a rational approach to all of our substances. And alcohol is in a unique situation because it's socially accepted that people use alcohol despite the huge effects. So I think from a drug policy perspective is there should be a non-emotional scientific approach of how we weigh up the harms to individuals and the harms to society and that that then plays out in our policy. And I think there is a lot of evidence showing that anything that aims to ban something, so an a punitive prohibitionist approach doesn't work. When they tried to ban alcohol in America, they had huge problems as a result of, um, you know, gangsterism, lots of people um, getting alcohol poisoning. So 
the approach of trying to ban anything is never a good policy approach. But would the so, policy approach be affected at all if the ban was on the advertising of the sale of liquor, not banning the liquor itself, a model similar to that of what we now know in relation to the tobacco industry? They don't advertise, but they sure can sell and yes. consume. So, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of, of data showing that there are some benefits in restricting access, in restricting advertising, in investing in evidence-based interventions. So I think it's, again, looking at what interventions have, have taken place in different settings to inform policy. So, for example, in some of the northern European countries, they've quite a lot of control of where alcohol can be bought, who can buy it, where it can be accessed. There's also um, data in South Africa showing that how the approach and the policy around tobacco smoke has smoking has reduced the prevalence of smoking in certain age groups. So the kind of change of the age of, of smoking, the uh, advertising, the what are some of the other policy changes, um, where you can smoke, all of those things have not eliminated tobacco, but they've definitely changed um, the number of people that are using tobacco. And I think one of the things from a substance use perspective is you're trying to delay the onset of when people do use substances because experimentation is part of normal development. And you want people, if they do experiment, to be aware of the risks, not the myths. And if they do develop health consequences, they're able to access services. And the majority of people, even with alcohol um, and cannabis uh, and even things like methamphetamine, use it without significant harm to oneself. Mm. But there are some people that um, develop health consequences or place other people at risk. So I think, you know, driving a car is a good example. Um, But then again, it's looking at how the use of alcohol or other drugs affects people's ability to drive, not necessarily what the level in their blood is. It's, It's an assessment of function and how it affects function is really important. So I think essentially what you are saying, generally speaking, drugs are not as harmful as the using drugs on its own is not nearly as harmful as the consequence of not knowing how to use drugs. Would that be fair in relation to me trying to summarize the thesis of what you're saying? Well, I think that's an element of it, but it's actually it's the policy relating to the to the substance that is much more harmful than the substance itself. Okay, so well, critique this op- Cannabis this is a policy. really good example. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I'm saying just critique then this policy approach that doesn't accord with the outcomes that it should. Yeah, and that's the, the big um, problem is that uh, there's a lot of moral positioning around the, the views of different substances. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. Even in the global um, policy conventions, they frame you know, drug use as evil. There's no other thing that's mentioned or framed as evil. And a lot of the kind of approaches and investments and what has happened in the global south has been influenced largely by, by powerful nations and what they've decided to, to kind of focus on. And there are assessments of, of the impact of these approaches, particularly in places where there have been you know, mass um, executions of people. In South Africa, in our chapter, we highlight how there's a huge and increasing HIV and viral hepatitis C epidemic 
in South Africa because of limited access to sterile injecting equipment. And I think just recognizing that the substances themselves are really a symptom of people's socioeconomic challenges and recognizing that enforcing laws to try and ban substances are not addressing the underlying causes. You know, for youth, there's a lot of disenfranchisement, there's a lack of hope, there's um, people dealing with a lot of trauma, and substances serve a very important purpose for a lot of people. And having punitive, um, non-evidence-informed approaches are very detrimental to people's well-being. Mm, interesting thoughts coming through from Dr. Andrew Scheiber, medical doctor and policy expert in relation to drugs. Specifically, he is attached to, to UCT's Institute of Infectious Disease and Molecular Medicine. Let's take a quick call because it always is short, sharp and precise with our caller from Durban. Good evening, Scully. Good evening to you, Sengezo. Mm. Sengezo, I, I just want to say, man, you know, after a very long, long time, I hear the, like all what the, your guest, the doctor, the honorable doctor is saying, you know, it's like music to the ear. Because I come from a long way on. Uh, there was a time when when the previous previous regime, uh, government, uh, you, there was a, you, you, you had to go serve five years just for possession of marijuana. You know, and marijuana is not a drug. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a herbal growing. You know, and 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 people have been using it around the world. Uh, I don't want to go too much into it. Mm. And now it's for medicinal use, and um, it's taken the government so long to you know uh, approve of it uh, completely. Like you know, to make it decriminalize, uh, make it legal. It's now used for medicinal use. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and when it comes to use comparative, compared with, with, with alcohol, mm, you mm, can mm. drive miles, miles, <laughs> you can, you can drive around the world, you know, with, with, with marijuana, but sure. not alcohol. Excellent. Scully, much appreciated for your thoughts. We're going to pick up on this conversation immediately after the short ad break. And Rishabha, please just make a note of the conversation that we must have in relation to marijuana. Boom! In Tsango. After this, 2051. SMS SAFM now on 41391. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezo Mapete on SAFM. Drug policies and development, conflict and coexistence, a conversation which is another eight minutes to go of Dr. Andrew Scheiber, UCT's medical doctor and policy expert, Institute of Infectious Diseases and Molecular Medicine. Scully mentions, if you like, something which is quite consistent with the general messages that you've come through, that the use of drugs is not per se bad. It doesn't amount to the kind of doom and gloom where ineffective policies or dangerous policies and even their framing is. For instance, ever since um, Deputy Chief Justice Zondo legalized the use of recreational marijuana, the kinds of scares we thought we would have to deal with as a society if the arguments on the other side are anything to go by are totally non-existent. South Africa is still relatively functional and many, many people are not at all the reason for their wanton ways because of the legalization of marijuana. Your thoughts? So it's very true. And it's just important to know that people use substances. We all use substances. And when 
when cannabis, I think an important thing is we can't stop at cannabis. We need to understand that many of the the reasons why the the judgment was made was based on the Constitution and the the logic that applies to cannabis applies to all substances. So it's people's ability to make a choice of what substances they use in the privacy of, of personal spaces. And it's really to understand that in places where they have decriminalized drugs, for example, Portugal um, and some of the, the, the U.S. states where cannabis is, is also um, being moving towards legal regulation, there hasn't been this huge you know, failure of the state. If anything, it's allowed the police and the criminal justice services to not be wasting expenditure on things that they uh, can't make a difference on and they can reallocate um, finances and resources to things that work and to people who need that. And, yeah, so I, I think in terms of cannabis, what the current bill, which is in draft, however, is problematic. It's limited only to people who have private space, and the private space is very easy to find, but it means basically if you are poor and you don't have a private space, essentially then you still are being criminalized. Um, there are also still quite harsh penalties for um, having amounts that are beyond what they specified as personal use, and those numbers are quite arbitrary. It doesn't take account of the huge number of people, particularly in um, rural you know, eastern parts of the country, in, in KZN and Eastern Cape, who, for whom you know, cannabis is an important economic um, activity, the, the cultivation thereof. And the, the bill has very harsh penalties for people who have over certain amounts. So I think the, the judgment is good. It recognizes people's individual choice uh, and to use it in a, in a safe way. Um, and to avoid the harms that criminalization has. But it doesn't go far enough. And I think still we've we put in comments in terms of the bill and the organization TBHIVK that I'm also affiliated with and other organizations is to highlight we have to be sure that our drug policy doesn't negatively affect um, poor, previously disadvantaged people. If anything, we have to right the wrongs of our historical legacy of um, discriminatory policy, and if anything, make sure that people who are um, poor, who don't have access to um, some of the kind of socioeconomic elements of, of a lot of space that is within their private um, kind of area, that they also can benefit from the rights of choice to use substances in a, in a healthy way. Let's talk about that because it, it is something that the society has to deal with. And simply because we don't have enough time, I'll just say this in relation to the education that is necessary in the reframing of our relationship with drugs and so should follow the policy. But on present facts, its policing has a disproportionate effect on the poor people who are no more or worse consumers or offenders of the current systems and policies in place than those who might not fall into that lower socioeconomic bracket. And perhaps that needs urgent attention because it has a sense of prioritizing freedoms of people and those are judged on one's well-offness or not. Uh, yeah, I fully agree. And, and I think in terms of education, if there is education around substances, it's got to be um, 
neutral. Uh, so much of the evidence and all the information that's provided is actually myths. So, for example, things like, you know, whoever uses, whoever smokes will go on to take methamphetamine, who will go on to use heroin. There's very little evidence to support those kinds of gateway processes. And recognizing that many people will use substances and they, you, they will experiment and only a small proportion will go on to develop a substance use disorder. And it is often people who can't afford an expensive bottle of wine, for example, and have much fewer choices of what substance they can use. And they're often used for the same reason. And it's just that socioeconomic um, policy framework that really excludes people who have limited choices or they have specific preferences. And just historically, their preference has been made criminal. So it is a very big problem. Is it Department of Health's responsibility or Department of Social Development more to try and reimagine this society in relation to drug policies and development? So it's the Substance Abuse um, Prevention Act designates the Department of Social Development to be responsible um, agency for most of the substance use services. The Department of Health is responsible for a, a sub-proportion, particularly things that are related to people with comorbidities. So really it's the Department of Social Development that has got the most important and most difficult role. The, there have been some positive changes in the social, Department of Social Development. Historically, they've only focused on abstinence. And as we, I said earlier around prohibition, abstinence also as an mm. only option is not effective. Um, and the new National Drug Master Plan at least moves away from abstinence-only approaches and includes the possibility of more evidence-based interventions that also include harm reduction. And I think it's really people in society that uh, really have a lot of power because many of the political decisions and the, the kind of politicking that takes place is this idea of a drug-free world or the idea of that, you know, if we just lock people away, it'll take the problem away. And that's not at all the case. You know, there are a lot of serious problems affecting our communities. And one of the ways that people are either getting some kind of enjoyment or some kind of relief or, or um, sort of numbing of, of their pain is through substances. Fair enough. Let's leave it there. I, I do actually want to interest you because now that you've mentioned matters related to harm reduction, we do have a conversation immediately after the news with Dr. Khosile Tlape, who's an ophthalmologist and harm reduction advocate formerly, and you might know him with the Health Professions Council of South Africa. He's talking about harm reduction approach and the ethical alternatives to treatment. Perhaps you might want to listen, and even more so, you might want to call and just sort of dovetail into what he would be saying. For now, though, thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Scheiber, medical doctor and policy expert at UCT. 21 hours, 38 seconds. It's time for news. Greg, how was your weekend?